1: From Luminary, this is Karamo, a podcast. Hey friends, welcome to Karamo. I'm your friend Karamo, and this interview is part of my Inspo to Go series. If you're new to the podcast, Inspo to Go interviews are focused around one person, most of the time a friend of mine, whose journey has personally inspired me to be better, to learn more, to try more. And I want to introduce them to you because I know their story will inspire you. So my inspo-to-go guest on this episode is a woman by the name of Emily Tyra. Emily is best known for being a Broadway and television actress. She has worked with Hugh Jackman and has starred on the hit show Cold Black for many years. But what makes her such an inspiration is the fact that during one of the most fruitful times of her life, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. The way that Emily handled this time during her life is such an inspiration to me, and I know it will be to you as well. Hey, friends! Friends, I'm so excited to introduce you to Emily Tyra.
0: Hey, Emily! Hi, Karamo!
1: So, Emily, I know that you were raised in Minneapolis, and you grew up studying dance, music, acting, and improv. Can you tell me about your childhood? What was it like?
0: So, I grew up in the suburbs of the Twin Cities. It was a really lovely place to grow up and I grew up on a cul-de-sac, leave the door unlocked. It was a safe and community oriented upbringing, I feel like. And in terms of, you know, how my parents got me interested in these extracurricular activities that took over my life, they kind of showered me with options as a young child. So I was in soccer. I was in basketball. I was taking quieter lessons with the neighborhood. I was doing piano lessons at a neighbor's house. And then they just kind of followed my lead in terms of things that i was interested in and what i wanted to spend more energy and time on all oh, that that ultimately you know led me to take a huge interest in dance Start doing that competitively, and then ultimately ended up in New York and then out here in LA.
1: I do love that you said that your parents showered you with options, which is such a nice reminder for parents to understand that as children are growing, it's good to give them as many options as possible. Because I don't know where it happens, if it's like in third grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, one point, everyone's like, Oh, try this, do this. And then one day they're like, nope, you have to make one career choice. You have to make one decision for your life. And I think that does a disservice to us as creative people, but also just as human beings. So I love that your parents showered you with options. What a beautiful visual that is. And so, you know, having those options, what did that do for your life?
0: Well, you know, I think what it really taught me to do was learn how to follow my own instincts and really get to know myself really well because I was presented with the option, well, do you want to continue taking dance classes or do you want to spend your time on this? Or So by having my parents defer to me for the decision-making on that, it really allowed me to cultivate who I am as a person and my wants and needs from an early age to ultimately, you know, when I graduated from high school, being able to make that decision about where I wanted to go with my adulthood, being informed by all these things that I had learned and become interested in throughout my childhood. So and I was really fortunate to have a family that supported me and trusted me to make those decisions for myself.
1: That's a really good thing to have people who can trust you and do that because, you know, making the decision to come to to be in Hollywood is not the <laughs> easiest decision. I mean, no, it's, it's <laughs> not. It is yeah. scary
0: for parents, too. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, first I went to New York, which is even scarier for, for them. I remember my mom just like giving me a couple cans of mace and being like, OK, you know, <laughs> go down the dark like, streets.
1: That is funny, but it's, it's true. But it's also funny. It's like, hold on, like, just protect yourself. You can do exactly what you only can do to try to prepare your children as much as possible, especially when they're hitting the, the mean streets of any town, really, where they're going off by themselves. And so, you know, having that experience of living in New York. Could be perceived as scary for many, especially when you're young. But you were able to navigate through that scary moment, which really sort of brought you to a space where you were able to navigate a scary moment later on in your life, which is when you found out that you had brain cancer. Where were you at in your life before you found out that you were diagnosed with brain cancer?
0: I look at my life as before the diagnosis and after. It's very much like there's a distinct line. Right before all this happened, I was in such a wonderful place <laughs> in my life, <laughs> sort of ironically. And I actually am am really looking back so grateful for that because I think if this had Kind of come at a low period in my life. I, I don't know that I would have been able to handle it in the way that I was. I was I had just uh, finished a couple of seasons on this network TV show called Code Black, which was awesome. It had just gotten canceled nine months before this diagnosis, and then right after that, my now husband and I got engaged. So we were like planning our wedding. I had recently started a small business selling. Ceramics. I throw ceramics as a hobby. And honestly, I was in such a great place of knowing myself and feeling excited about, you know, new opportunities and getting married and starting this next chapter of my life. And then this came out of nowhere. I was just out for a run and started feeling a little bit funny. Came home and called my fiance. And as soon as he walked in the door, I started having a seizure. Oh, wow. He called 911. I don't remember anything really after that. And he basically saved my life. <laughs> and then I woke up in the hospital hours and hours later. And that sort of led to the, the saga of the diagnosis and things like that. But I, I mean, I was really in a beautiful place to like accept opportunity in my life. And I was like in wonderful spirits. So it was just this sort of crazy thing that came in out of the blue.
1: Had you always been in a space your entire life where you listened to your body? Because I know that's something that a lot of people don't do. Like you could have been on that run and just been like, oh, I didn't eat enough breakfast or- Yeah,
0: so I very much believe that I'm the right person for this. If you're, you're looking at cancer as a job, like I'm the person for the job because of the way that my life has gone so far. I've been given the tools to sort of navigate this in a way. And I guess I would say I started listening to my body or at least knowing what that actually meant in my like early to mid-20s after I had danced professionally. Because I think there's this misconception that like dancers listen to and trust and know their bodies really well, which they do. However, in a lot of circumstances as a professional dancer, you're actually trained to ignore that mm. um, and to carry on with rehearsal and to work through injuries and to just keep pushing through which I did for many years of my career and then at one point I was like I don't actually want to do this to my body anymore so at that point was when I really started understanding what my body was telling me to do so I was lucky that I was you know I went out for this run and I was like this is not a normal sensation I've never felt anything like this before and I think I need to go and find shelter you know.
1: Yeah, acting on it quickly is the thing that, you know, every time I talk to somebody who has survived something that could have potentially taken their life, it's always about acting quickly. And which is, I hope, a reminder for anyone listening, if there's something going on in your body or your life where you're like, "Mm, something is not right, it's telling you to act on it. So once you got that diagnosis um, in the hospital and you woke up, what was your immediate thought?
0: Um, You know, it it sort of came in waves because I I think there's this sort of misconception that like a cancer diagnosis comes in and a doctor comes in uh, in a lab coat and is like, you know, you have this. And that was not the situation at all. And I didn't know a whole lot about these types of very unique medical situations, even though I did play a TV doctor. I didn't really understand (laughs) that um, they're not really allowed or able to tell you anything that's not black and white proven. So the first thing was being shaken awake in the ER and being told that something came up on your CT scan.
1: You just taught me something new. I did not know that a doctor could not come in and tell you sort of the gray area of what they're thinking. So they have to wait till it's black or white. Like they have to say, I know this, or I don't know that to give the information.
0: Yeah, I think that if there's not something clear to report, they have to be very transparent about that. In fact, I was in the ER and they had done a CT scan, which I was unconscious for. And my husband and my mother were there waiting. And my mom really did not want them to wake me up and tell me that they found something on the CT scan. And they were like, we have to, because she's an adult and we have to tell her that we found this thing. But my mom was very adamant that like, it's not going to, it's just going to worry her right now. She's just going to be upset and we don't have any other information. So she was kind of like also trying to do this protective thing in the, yeah. in that moment, which yeah. I was really unaware of. Cause I was, you know, they, pumped me with all kinds of like anti drugs and things like that, um, that inhibited my memory at the time. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, so it, it's that first. And then I was transferred to a neurosurgical unit at USC and then I had an MRI in the middle of the night. And the next morning, uh, a team of doctors wheeled in this imaging cart and were like, this is what's in your brain. And yeah. Even then, you know, they they show you you have got you have a mass in your brain. It looks like blah, blah, blah or blah, blah, blah. But we won't know until we go in for surgery and then we can biopsy it. So, again, they're not giving you like – they're not going to say, well, it could be blah, 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 or this or that or that. They're kind of going, this is what we see. This is what we know for sure. And then we'll just keep you updated as we find out more information. So until I was actually – out of surgery, had a follow up MRI, and then had follow ups with a radiation oncologist and an oncologist. That was when I really found out that I had cancer. And that was like almost a month after the seizure.
1: What a timeline! You go from this space of being in a space of accepting opportunities. Getting engaged, which is such a happy time for people. It can also be stressful, let's be real as well. But you know, it's a happy moment where you're like, oh my gosh, things are going on. You're starting a business. Acting is taking off. And then you have this seizure. And there's a month of waiting where you don't know truly what's going on until you find out that you have this diagnosis. So it's really going from like a space of like, what a pendulum. Here I am happy and things are great to the next moment uncertainty for your future. How did you deal with that uncertainty when you first got that information?
0: To be honest with you, I am very much like a facts oriented person. I find a lot of comfort and safety in information. I'm sort of able to take what is real and what is not and separate them very you know, easily. And that's I'm just, I'm just very fortunate to have a brain that works that way. So for me, it was like obviously a very scary thing But I was just biting things off one thing at a time. I actually remember my time in the hospital very positively. All of my friends came to visit me. The whole cast of Code Black came to visit me. My family was there. I remember the night before my surgery. It was very important to me that I come out of surgery looking gorgeous. I don't know. It was maybe that was. the drugs. <laughs> I don't know. What it was
1: like. um. <laughs> Listen, even if it wasn't the drugs, I would support it. Let me tell you something. I would have been there, like, girl. Let me let me hook you up really quickly. Let me just give you a little touch up, real quick.
0: My family came. My dad and. My mom were there and my father-in-law and everybody ordered sushi and we all just like ate in the hospital room the night before, like basically had a sushi party. I remember that time, like very fondly, the nurses and doctors were incredible. All of the nurses were so nice to me and took care of me so beautifully. During the time after my surgery, you know, I wasn't really interested in the sort of dark content that was going on on on, uh, streaming platforms and stuff like that. So I've literally seen every single episode of Queer Eye. My husband and I watched a lot of it while I was in recovery and I feel like every time you came in and like broke down the um the person we, we just we would both just start ugly crying and so it was like oh. a very, very like important outlet for us <laughs> during that time where we both just kind of needed like a catalyst for tears and um you were definitely uh, like a part of that a big, big part of that
1: <laughs> Hearing you say that makes me feel good I really appreciate that
0: And then after the fact, before I went back for my follow-up MRI and before we had all of this information coming at us, my fiance and I actually decided, well, we were planning a wedding for June and that was, you know, in the works when all of this came into play. Um, But we decided we wanted to go to the courthouse and get married. (laughs) And so, and actually nobody knows about this. So the cat's out of the bag, but we actually went a week after I got out of the hospital to the Beverly Hills courthouse and had um a mini wedding. And I, so I have all of these like really beautiful, fun memories of right coming out of that surgery and just focusing on, you know, today. And like I, I remember it was April 5th, and I was like, I just felt stunning. Like I had just come out of the hospital. I should have been bloated and awful and on the couch, but I was just like wearing this beautiful dress and like we went to lorries and we had so much fun. And I mean it was <laughs>
1: Not, hold, I know. this is this sounds amazing to me because I mean, to be able to find the ability to focus on the day as you said, and still be able to, like, Go after your life when you've just had brain surgery. How long is the recovery time that you were able to get to the courthouse a week later? <laughs> it's like because you might just be Superwoman.
0: I don't know. I think so. Technically, the recovery time from a craniotomy alone—that's that's without like any of the follow-up treatments or anything like that—is a it's a year or a year and a half, is what I was told by my neurosurgeon. So the idea that I was doing this was sort of insane. However, it's such a case by case situation with brain cancer and tumors and surgery and things like that, they just kind of take it off of the patient. And I was so happy to be alive and so happy to come home. And I learned a lot about myself during that immediate time after the surgery and the seizure. I realized that I just want to be happy. That's my instinct. And I guess I never really acknowledged that about myself, that like my constant push is to get to a state of happiness. And I didn't I wouldn't have told you I'm an optimist. I wouldn't have told I would have said I'm kind of like a realist. But actually in the moment of fighting for my life, for lack of a better phrase, I really instinctually was like, I'm choosing to be happy right now. I mean, the amount of silver linings that Adam, my husband and I kind of came up with during that time, thank God, you know, and and I was just so Incredibly grateful f- for the fact that Adam was in my life and these doctors did such an incredible job and that I was alive. I mean, this was a thing that is, is really life threatening, just the seizure alone. And so for me, coming out of that, I, I was like kind of on cloud nine. I was like, I'm alive. I get a second chance at this, at that life, at everything.
1: There's two things that I really want to highlight. You said when you were found of the diagnosis, you were fact-oriented, and you only bit off one thing at a time to digest each thing. When things get thrown at you, it's our immediate inclination to want to devour all the information, to get everything. And what that does is it actually causes more anxiety and causes us to feel more stressed. And so you saying, well, I just took it one thing at a time. Let me find out what this means. Let me spend some time there. Let me go to the next thing, is a really healthy way of digesting such big news that sometimes is overwhelming to handle. You have to consciously shift your mindset to where you want it to go. Because if you don't, your mind will on its own go to what you perceive is bad or what's going to happen. It will go to the negative. Instead of saying, I'm going to, from day one, shift my perspective to I want to only push out happy thoughts. And that's what you did while while you were in a wedding dress at the courthouse a week <laughs> after having brain surgery, you know what I mean? Which is pretty amazing.
0: I don't think that it's healthy to deny yourself of any authentic feelings. Even the negative ones really serve a purpose. Um, you know, I I'm not I'm not saying that we didn't shed a lot of tears in that first month or so, but The things that we choose to give energy to and choose to focus our minds on really dictate how our story ends up going. Those moments right after... trauma are really crucial for training your brain and wiring it towards how you want to handle the situation moving forward. And I'm not saying that there weren't a lot of negative feelings and a lot of negative thoughts that came into play during that time. For me in particular, a lot of fear. I guess what I've learned throughout my life, having been put in a position of uncertainty quite often in my career and my life, is that how you choose to disperse your energy in these thought processes is kind of how you end up successful or not in the end. And to me, the idea of success is happiness. And when there's a lot of anxiety and fear and negative feelings, how do you take those and accept them and embrace them for what they are and what they're trying to do to help you, and then use them to push into another direction that may be serving you a little bit better. It's really difficult. It's really hard. And particularly when you're dealing with something as serious as cancer or any sort of trauma like that, you have to work really hard at that. But it is absolutely a part, a conscious effort to not let something that is so terrifying and devastating derail you so that the rest of your life is dictated by it.
1: You better preach it, girl. It's a lesson (laughs) that people who even aren't going through something as traumatic as you went through can also pick up and learn on. So my next question for you is during your time of healing, how do you deal with people wanting to know, oh, what happened? And, you know, can I see the scar? Any of those questions that people naturally ask because they're curious about it. How did you deal with that? And then also, how did you deal with saying, I need more time to rest or to heal, like being confident in expressing, I-, I need me time now.
0: I made a decision pretty quickly that I wasn't going to keep this quiet, which was a conscious decision on my part to share what had happened to me and to be open about what I was going through moving forward, mostly because I find secret keeping really exhausting. <laughs> it's just not in my personality. I'm a very open book type of person and to kind of keep things hidden is, um, takes a lot of effort for me that I just didn't really have the energy for. And I thought, gosh, how many people in the world are going through this and don't have anybody to share this with? I mean, I was kind of looking around for an example of, you know, somebody who had been through this and I, I literally couldn't find one brain cancer, at least the type that I have is, is really rare to find somebody who is also female and in their early thirties and kind of in this place of life. I, you know, I went on Reddit, I tried to find a support group. And so for me over time, I've actually become even more vocal because it feels like if there's just a one single person out there who's talking about this, then I hope that there are people listening, you know, um, or that might need it. And then in terms of how I handled people um, with questions and wanting to know and understand things, I was like, sure. You want to see the scar? It's pretty gnarly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you want to know what it's like to wake up from brain surgery? Do you want to, I mean, there were, there were so many things about it that I found actually like really interesting and unique. And by kind of making it scientific and like fascinating, I was able to share parts of it that might be uncomfortable for people. Like the fact that when you come out of brain surgery, your senses kind of reset And I had read about this beforehand, before I went into surgery. And then afterwards, the sensation of seeing colors was so overwhelming. The sounds were crazy. I couldn't go out anywhere without earplugs because it was so overstimulating. Everything was overstimulating.
1: That's fascinating. The sound of a cricket would be the sound of like a concert. What was that like?
0: For example, I remember Beyonce's, I think it was like her Coachella performance or something last year. Anyway, my, my husband wanted to watch it and he put it on. And within the first five minutes, I was like, I am so overstimulated. I can't – like it was on our TV in our living room. We were in our pajamas and I just like I couldn't take it. There was, was like yeah. so much glitter and amazingness and noise and dancing. And I was like, I want to love this, but I'm so – like I can't <laughs> take it
1: anymore. I, w- I want to let you know you just described my worst nightmare as part of the beehive. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't an example (laughs) you could have said that would have been more devastating to me than what you just said. You're like, so Beyonce was on and I had to turn it off. I'm like oh shit.
0: Wait, all of these things that I love so much, I cannot enjoy right now because I'm so overwhelmed. You really feel your brain processing everything because it's so smart and plastic and it focuses on things that it's supposed to and not on things that it's not. It's figuring out how to rebalance everything. It's like going through the sound mixer and having everything rebalanced and recalibrated. And it takes some time, whether it was a result of going through the brain surgery or again, the amount of like epic drugs that I was on. Uh, I really had no inhibitions about telling people what I was going through. So even like I had some unusual depth perception malfunctions when I first came out of surgery, my, my tumor is on my right parietal lobe, which kind of has to do with depth perception and balance and positioning of your proprioception, like your body in space. I would like go to the grocery store and find myself like standing way too close to somebody and not realize it because I just couldn't tell how far away they were. And then like, I would want to just open my mouth and be like, I'm so sorry. I just had brain surgery. Like I just wanted to tell people <laughs> what was going on with me. <laughs> and,
1: I just had that visual of you in like this store, you know what I mean? Especially like now in our current world, you know, yeah. uh, with the pandemic and everything of like social distancing, of you just being somewhere and being like, sorry, it's brain surgery. And then people being like,
0: people like okay, I mean, <laughs> like, thank God it happened last year. For sure. Yeah. But yeah, and then in terms of telling, you know, sharing with people like what I had gone through, I sort of had to take it, to, I had to judge my audience, right? This is the kind of information that people will follow your lead in terms of how you talk about it. So I was like, well, if I talk about this with a sense of humor and confidence and I don't infuse it with the fear factor, then people will be able to take it and digest it. Because sometimes when you're sharing information about, you know, this trauma that you went through or a cancer diagnosis or some other thing. It feels like you're handing somebody a baby that's on fire and just like walking away, being like, here you go. You take care of it. I don't know, you know, whatever. I definitely experienced that with the first couple of, you know, conversations that I had with, especially with new people about it. And then I realized, well, it's because they're afraid, you know, talking to somebody about something that is traumatizing and scary can trigger a response within them, that has nothing to do with me. Yes. You know, I obviously everybody is afraid of cancer. So when I bring this up, I realize that I'm the ringleader of this circus and I have to sort of put it in a format that allows people to experience it in the way that I feel that they should or that I want them to, I can't control how people react to, to fear or anxiety. But what I can do is put it in terms that I feel communicate exactly, you know, what this is and how, to not be afraid and how, you know, how I've chosen to move forward with my life.
1: Well, it's education and community. Like you said, it's, it's a big part of why you shared your story, which, you know, everyone has their own process of how they deal and how they want to share their experiences. But what I think is really beautiful and poignant about what you said is that You know, you searched for people that you could identify with and learn from and commiserate with, and there wasn't that community. So it's become sort of your mission now to share your experience with people so that they can understand exactly what you went through so that maybe they don't feel alone, which is such a powerful thing to do for other people as you're on your journey of healing. So I just want to say thank you, because I know somebody out there hearing this is probably like, oh my gosh, I thought I was alone. I Felt alone. I didn't know how to deal with this. And you've just given them a sense of community while educating them. And that's, I think that's the greatest gift that we can give to each other as human beings is connection and education. And so, wow, it's, it's really special.
0: For a long period of time, you know, following the diagnosis and everything, I was searching for somebody who was like me. I was looking for somebody to connect with. And in the process of of looking for that and you know, discovering all kinds of people who also felt that I actually discovered a community and camaraderie in the fact that people who have gone through something traumatic, really, they they feel alone, yeah. no matter what it is. Yeah. You feel unique, you feel like no one is like you, like no one can feel or understand what you're going through. And that is a commonality. You know, so I feel now after having gone through, this now for, for a year, a little over a year, um, actually feel like I have more of a community with the cancer community with honestly with anybody who's sort of gone through something that changed their life drastically. I feel like I can connect. So I've sort of expanded my, my commonality and my connection with everyone, uh, in a way that is really profound and and makes me feel like I'm never alone.
1: Yeah. This is why you are an inspiration. And this is why I want to talk to you because Not only are you talented and funny, but you also inspire people just by living your truth and being transparent about it. I'm so thankful that you are alive because I know through your story, you're gonna be saving other people's lives. And before I let you go, I do want to talk about your career because you've had an exceptional career of acting and dancing. I want to know what's next for you.
0: <laughs> well, um, right now we're in a lockdown, so I, I actually have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Everything kind of, you know, in our in show business kind of is just at a halt. And to be honest with you, I love that <laughs> that that's the answer right now because the question, I think, in our industry, that is the scariest is what's next when you don't have an answer to that. And right now, none of us do. And I think that that's kind of nice um, to sort of, again, like there's camaraderie in that versus it feeling like I'm not keeping up with the rat race. We're actually all in this together.
1: (laughs) You know what, I'm, I'm telling you, you better preach because it's the truth. Because most of us feel outside of this pandemic, we felt like oh my gosh everyone else is doing more and everyone else is doing something and i'm not doing enough you know i always tell people comparison is the thief of joy of the worst the minute you start to compare yourself to other people you start to lose that joy and lose that tenacity of life right now everyone is able to be transparent about like i don't have all the answers things are not okay things i don't know what's going on i don't know what's next and that's okay because I'm still willing to be optimistic and be driven and go after what I know to be true, even without knowing exactly what's next. Yeah. See, another inspo. That's it. Okay, Emily, one last favor before I go. You work with Hugh Jackman on Broadway. Is there any way since I'm single that you can convince him to leave his partner so that we can get married? I mean, this is just a question <laughs> that I'm throwing out there. No pressure.
0: <laughs> I am willing to bet that he would gladly go on like a cute lunch date with you. I mean, he is, li- he's a gem of a human being. I wish we could all marry him, you know, in general, like we just do one nationwide, everybody marries Hugh Jackman. Group marriage? Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm actually about this. I'm actually okay with this. Like Adam,
0: met- he met him this last year. We went to his concert at the Hollywood Bowl, which was is basically the show that we did together on Broadway, Times a Thousand. And we went backstage and said hey to him, and my husband got to meet him for the first time, and I was like, this is the most magical moment. Like he, he's just this like, epic creature. So anyway, I'll write some emails, <laughs> okay.
1: Perfect, done. I'm going to hold you to that in like in a month. I'm going to be like, so you hasn't emailed me back about our worldwide marriage to him. Is- <laughs> Listen, you are a pleasure to speak to. Thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for inspiring us all. I really appreciate you. Of
0: course, it's so nice to talk to you, Karama.
1: This episode was recorded earlier this year. I have recently spoken to Emily about her journey of healing, and she has expressed that she is in a new place. Some of the feelings that she had have changed, and she has now realized she was experiencing PTSD. She realizes that she needs more support to help her process her emotions. And I love anyone that goes on an emotional journey and understands that healing is in a one-stop destination that it comes at different waves, at different times, and it's all about keeping yourself open to learning about what you need to be your best self and feel your best self. Wow, friends, I feel so inspired. I wanna give a big thank you to Emily for sharing her story with us today. She is such an inspiration. Listen, friends, what I know for sure is that when life happens, the only thing we can control is how we respond to it. Whether that is listening to our body and getting checkups, whether it's asking for help from those we love, or focusing our energy into positive stuff, even in our darkest moments. That's the only control we have. If you are listening to this and you are going through something, I want you to know you are more resilient and you are stronger than you can even imagine. I love you and there are people that love you and we are all with you and rooting for you. Friends, as always, thank you for listening and growing with me. Make sure to hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Karamo and let me know your feelings about today's episode. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Karamo, a podcast, is an entertainment show. For advice or support on any emotional or mental challenges, please contact a licensed professional in your town. This show was produced by Karamo, Nick Panella of Workhouse Media, and assisted by Ellie Charles. All music composed by Ernie Wooden and the Big Woozy Band, and all episodes are edited by Nathan Moody.